Please stand for the reading of God's word. So our passage today is from the Gospel of Matthew, verse, chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman uh, who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she, she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all the district. You can be seated. Good morning. It's always a blessing to be with you on the Lord's Day to sing praises to his name together to read from his word and just in general to gather to worship the king who is worthy this morning we arrive at the point of matthew's gospel to the first half of a final grouping of miraculous events before we get into another of the lengthy teaching sessions such as we found in the Sermon on the Mount. We recall we said the gospel is organized. There are five different main groups of teaching throughout the gospel intermixed with, with um, different narrative in between, uh, usually containing a lot of healings or different uh, movements of Christ and his disciples. This week we are going to look at Jesus' healing of a woman, woman suffering with a bleeding hemorrhage and his raising of a young girl back to life after she had died. For the next couple of weeks, we're actually going to take a break from our series in Matthew to focus on the Incarnation. First, at the anticipation of the Messiah. Then on Christmas Eve, we will talk, walk through Scripture to see the harmony of what was promised in the Messiah and then what came to pass at His birth. And then on Christmas morning, we will celebrate the arrival of God in the flesh and its significance on the nation of Israel and for the entire world. Well, before we get into our text this morning, it's probably going to be a good idea for us to spend some time discussing some of the uh, varied emphasis and structures of the different gospel accounts. If you were to look at our text this morning and compare it with its companion texts in the other synoptic gospels in Mark 5, 21 through 43, or Luke 8, 40 through 56, you would see that Matthew gives us a much shorter account and left out some seemingly important details. It might even look like he remembered the events differently than the other writers of Scripture. As though he remembered it differently than the apostles through which the other authors received 
these firsthand accounts. Well, before we look at some of the differences in this account between Matthew and the other Gospels, let's look at why the Gospels are not more or less copies of each other if they are all faithful and accurate to depict the ministry and the life of Jesus. Well, we should really start this kind of a conversation by stating clearly that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. That means that all of Scripture is true. All of Scripture is faithful to reality and to history. All of Scripture is dependable and without error. That has to be the bedrock upon which we build any understanding as we try to uh, link Scripture with each other or to work through things that at first glance might not be clear to us. What we have in the different Gospels is not an attempt for them to bo- for the, all the authors to write down step by step everything that they can remember about the life and ministry of Jesus. That's not their goal. If it was, we should expect that they would agree on the order of events, that what they would agree on the details of those events. That's not what we have in these gospels. What we have is the life and ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, told from different perspectives of different authors, each written for the specific purpose of the author for the intended audience to which it was given. Purposeful decisions were made about what to include in their particular gospel accounts. Purposeful decisions were made about how thorough they would be in any given account, if they would give all the details they could remember or if something shorter would suffice. And purposeful decisions were made even to what order the group of various teachings or events in the life of Jesus would be presented. So the differences are not due to different, witness remember, different witnesses remembering the events differently. That's not why we see differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John is different enough altogether and more developed that we typically think of John separately, although it remains true that John also does not contradict Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So our goal, or the differences are not due to to, to, um, misremembering. That would mean that some or all of the accounts would be in error. That, that, That does not fit with our bedrock assumption that Scripture is without error. And our goal is not, therefore, to try and piece together the truth of what actually happened by comparing some of the different events, as though they all spoke to something about the reality, but missed part of it. We needed to work to link all of them together and come up with the reality of what happens. That is not our goal. That would mean that Scripture only has the ability to lead us to the truth, not that it is truth in itself. There is a reason the Gospel authors included what they did, where they did, and in the detail that they did. Often, we can get some insight into that, and other times, it might be less clear to us. When it appears that they contradict each other or present the order of events differently from one another, 
We trust that it is God's word and there is in fact not error, but there is an intention made on the part of the gospel author to emphasize something, to group some teachings together, to to carry the meaning more fully, or to move some of the events around in order to do the same, to group things together in a way that emphasize what they wanted their audience to understand. And when we can think about the actual emphasis of the authors, that will often help us understand why they might have moved things around, or when we see that they've moved things around, it can help us understand what their emphasis is. Well, I state all of this both because it applies to our passage this morning when we compare it to the other gospel accounts, and Because I do not want to leave you unprepared or unarmed against the baseless attacks that many will try and levy against our confidence in the word of God. I don't want your faith to be shaken by supposed problems that really don't exist, but are only the objects of ignorance to the intention of the authors, the linguistic style of the authors, the type of writing of the age. We don't want to hide away from things that might cause somebody a moment's pause. We want to actually lean into them and show that we can trust the authority of the Word of God. This applies to our passage in two ways. First, if you look around the surrounding context of Matthew's account versus Mark and Luke, you will see that the timeline for these three accounts does not match up. They place these accounts at different points in the ministry of Jesus. Matthew records a lengthy series of events between when they arrived back from the Decapolis, where, if you remember, that is where Jesus uh, got rid of the demons and the demon-possessed man. He freed the man from demon possession. And where we find out in the other accounts that there was a legion of demons in this man that he, he cast out into the herd of swine and the people begged him to leave the land. So after they came back from that encounter, Matthew, Mark and Luke both go directly to our passage today where Matthew records a quite a long series of events uh, of healings and, and some teaching and interacting with the disciples of John and the Pharisees. And we can't just say at this point that somebody remembered it wrong. Again, that would be to accuse the word of God of error. You might be tempted to think that Matthew just filled in some details, that, that maybe the other two authors just decided to leave that part out, except we've got a different problem, because they actually mention these same events, these inter-between events. They just mention them different, in a different place, at a different stage of the ministry of Christ. So we are left with, either two, with one of two options. Either somebody was wrong, and we really can't trust this word as much as we think we can. Or, the gospel authors made a purposeful decision in the way they ordered their gospel accounts. You clearly can understand which of those two options I am advocating for, and I think is actually reasonable, not just to take on blind faith, but it makes sense. We can trust that the words of Jesus are accurate, that the events of Jesus' ministry are accurate, and that the order of events in which those teachings are woven together 
when they conflict one with a different gospel is not because they remembered it wrong. It's because they were intending to emphasize something specific to their audience. So why did Matthew, so we've been in Matthew, so why did Matthew organize these things the way that he did? Why did he take a different order of events than both Mark and Luke? We can probably figure it out pretty close if we remember some of the great themes that Matthew has been focusing on from the beginning of his gospel accounts. Remember, he is focused on right routinely through this gospel on the arrival of the coming of the kingdom of heaven and the authority of its king, Jesus the Messiah. Those have been major themes. There, there's some other ones that Matthew has been consistent with, but that's major themes. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has arrived, and her king is here, and her king has all authority. This Jesus, the Christ. Jesus' authority has been on display front and center since the Sermon on the Mount, and even before his authority was put on display, the word of the kingdom was the first thing that John the Baptist proclaimed, getting the people ready for Christ, and it is the first message that when Jesus came out of the wilderness in his time of testing, his message was the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. That was the opening salvo of Matthew's message in his gospel. And since that point, Jesus' authority has been on display, as I said, front and center. From the time of the Sermon on the Mount, where the authority of his teaching astounded the people. It was something they had never seen before. He claimed an authority to make radical demands upon his followers. That the life that they must follow, if they would be a citizen of this arrived kingdom, that they must be drastically different then the religious leaders of the day would have them to believe that their righteousness must be even greater than the the greatest righteousness they could conceive of. He showed his authority over sickness, over nature, over unclean spirits, and even that he had the authority to forgive sins. Woven throughout there are, are clear claims that he is in fact God. And then grouped nicely at the end of this section, as I said, that we'll be looking at this week and the week following Christmas, is that Jesus has authority over death, as well as once again showing him heal specific ailments that point directly back to the kingdom expectations given by Isaiah in his prophecy so many years before, specifically in passages like Isaiah 29, 18, and 19, or Isaiah 35, 5, and 6, where it discusses what it will be like when the kingdom comes, that the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised to life, the lame will leap with joy. Those kind of things, we see that grouped together right at the end of this teaching that he is showing without a doubt that the kingdom of God has come, that her king is reigning with authority, that he carried this authority with him, that he was showing this authority everywhere he went. So I believe that is why Matthew grouped these things together before getting into another lengthy series of teaching. He wanted this to be clear. He wanted this to be in the minds of the Jewish readers Remember, he wrote mostly to a Jewish audience, so the Jewish reader would understand when they saw things like raising the dead, healing incurable sickness, giving sight to the blind, and making the deaf hear. They would have put that together, that that is what Isaiah promised us 
so long ago. So this conversation of the differences between the Gospels, I think we can clearly see why Matthew would have made the choice to group things a little bit differently than did Mark or Luke. But that conversation also applies to our text this morning because Matthew at least appears to recall the events a little differently than Mark or Luke. We're going to get into that a little bit more later on, but suffice it to say for now, similar to his account of the satyrian on Matthew 8, Matthew summarizes the situation and thereby, for simplicity's sake, he combines two parts of the events, two different parts of conversation, into one. While that on the surface makes it look like it's a different account or that he's remembering it differently, in reality, it's communicating the same factual information in a more succinct manner. Well, with all that, I, th- I think, necessary groundwork laid... I ask you to join me in prayer as we prepare to approach our text this morning where we will interact throughout with both the accounts of Mark and Luke. Father, we are a needy people. We are desperate for the work of your spirit. We are so thankful for for the new life we have in Christ, thankful for the seal that your spirit is within us, our promise, our guarantee of our redemption, of our being saved from this body of death. Yet even now we still battle against the flesh and we confess that we need our Savior. We need his spirit. We want to be pleasing to our Father in heaven. Father, we ask you to help us now Make this text leap to us, Lord. Make this alive to us, that we would understand what the author intended. We don't want a new meaning. We don't want something new, something fresh. We want what was old, what was established, what was given once for all to the saints, the gospel that does not change. Father, mold us according to your unchanging word. that we might know our Savior more, that we might love Him better and obey Him more completely. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned before, both Mark and Luke record these events that we're talking about this morning, directly after Jesus is returned from the Decapolis, where they had ca- he had cast out the legion of demons. They both indicate that as soon as Jesus came back, he was once again pressed upon by a crowd of people eager for his return. So his desire to get away. Remember the, the whole point before, looking back into chapter 8, when Jesus asked his disciples to get the boat ready because he wanted to cross the sea. He was looking to get some distance from the crowds of people because everywhere he went, crowds of people pressed upon him. Whenever they found out where he was, crowds of people came to him. There was a constant pressure of the people. So back then, 
would you, we read, read that Jesus asked them to get a boat ready to cross the sea, and they crossed over the Decapolis. Of course, we don't find them getting much rest because they were struck by a storm on the way there, a storm so severe it was killing the disciples where Jesus had to be awoken to rebuke it and to calm it. And then when they were there, they found a demon-possessed man, and then rather than being celebrated for healing this man, they were begged to leave and, and go away once more. So the trip that meant to be restful wasn't restful. And they came back. And as soon as they came back, they were once again hounded by crowds of people. Matthew does record a number of events between arriving back in Capernaum and being approached by this ruler. Even so, Matthew maintains or perhaps even amplifies the reality that Jesus was being constantly pressed upon by people seeking his help. There wasn't time anywhere here for Jesus to be able to wind down or recharge in between the requests of the crowds of people. The pace of Jesus' ministry is exhausting just to read about. I can only imagine what it must have been like to live. We can sympathize with the disciples in those times where they seemed a little testy. We're quick to want to judge them when they seem, when they seem testy, when they seem tired, when they seem a little snarky. Yet we, we fail to remember the pressure that they were under following Jesus around trying to learn from him and, and still being pressed upon by these countless people desperate to be near. Even though the disciples weren't receiving the same pleas and demands that Jesus was subject to, they still fair, felt the weariness of the constant, unending pace of ministry. We don't often think of just how exhausting the fast-paced ministry of Jesus is, that of Jesus was. We tend to picture and we think of something in the past. We think, well, that, must, that was a, a simpler time. That was a, a slower time. That was an easier time. Yet Jesus was always busy. He constantly had people searching him out, pressing in to be near him, hoping to gain something from him by their efforts. Remember, if, if Jesus needed time to be alone... He couldn't just sneak off by himself during the day. At times when he tried or when he brought his disciples with him, it didn't take long and there was crowds around him once again. So if he wanted time alone, he had to get up and go out at a time that nobody else wanted to be awake. So he'd have to rise super early in the morning to be able to go and have time alone with the Father. So on top of already being tired, he was forced to to go out in unpleasant hours in order to be alone. On top of that, Jesus was often interrupted by the ministry needs of others while he was actually engaged in ministry. So he'd be meeting one need and he'd be interrupted by others with, with other pressing needs. People all thinking that what they needed was the most important so as we continue today, and any time you read the accounts of Jesus' ministry, think about how he responded to the busyness of serving others. How did our Lord respond to the busyness, the fast pace of ministry? Did he demand time to deal with his own issues before being willing to hear about the need of others? We hear that kind of thing a lot these days. 
You've got to get yourself right. You've got to take time for you, self-love, before you can have anything to give anybody else. Is that what Jesus modeled? Is that what his disciples modeled? Did Jesus complain about the neediness of those around him? Did he lash out or rebuke others when his plans were interrupted by something that they thought was more pressing or demanding than what he was already engaged in? Is that how we see him respond as people came up to him as petulant little toddlers saying, me, 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 me. Beloved, who are we called to emulate in the service of one another, especially within the church? Who are we called to emulate if not our king and our champion? The truth is that none of us are ever going to face the kind of continued pressure that Jesus faced from the needs of those around him. Nobody is ever going to want us as much as these people wanted to be near Christ. Nobody's ever going to think that we're capable of the same kind of things that Jesus was constantly pressed in because of. And none of us have Jesus' compassion, his love, his patience, his long-suffering endurance. Even so, we are called to emulate and follow the example of Christ. So I say this first to myself and then to whoever else may need to hear it. We are far too easily overwhelmed by the needs of others and the demands on us to serve. We are far too easily convinced that it is too much for us, that it is too tiring, that we just don't have enough to give. We were promised that this road would be hard, and we have all been called, not just the elders and the deacons, we have all been called in the church to live lives of service. So yes, there is rest beyond the river, but in this life we are called to labor, to work, to press on. We are called to not grow weary in our service one of another. We are not called to not grow weary in outdoing one another in love. And mercifully, mercifully, none of us are called to do this alone. If that was the case, then we would surely be crushed. But we are not called to do this alone. God recognizes our weakness, and God has given us each other. God has given us the church to walk this path together, to meet the needs of one another together, to strengthen each other where we are weak. And we are called collectively to follow the example of Christ and to not grow weary in doing what is good. Well, Matthew records this ruler coming to Jesus as he was addressing the disciples of John and, and the disciples of Pharisees that we discussed last week. So we see this picture not of him just traveling and walking along the road. We see him engaged in some very serious and hard conversation with the disciples of John and the Pharisees. And as he was discussing with them, we read this. While he was saying these things, then behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. 
Matthew uh, keeps with his pattern here and, and has a very summarized report. But Mark and Luke give us a little bit more information on this ruler. They let us know that his name was Jairus and that he was one of the rulers of the synagogue there in Capernaum. So this man, this ruler of the synagogue, came before Jesus, fell to his knees before him. The action of kneeling at Jesus' feet communicated quite a bit. Keep in mind that this man was, as I said, a ruler in the synagogue. He was a leading man in Capernaum. He was a religious leader in that town or that city. This man would have been of the class of Jews that we typically see in direct opposition to Jesus. The kind of man whose position and influence were most threatened by the new and popular teacher. Much more so if Jesus was more than just some flash in the pan uh, for 15 minutes of fame kind of prophet or wandering teacher. And he was actually the Messiah. Remember, to kneel at somebody's feet was to acknowledge their authority over you. It is to acknowledge their power over you. It is to acknowledge their greater position over you. That man placed himself into an obvious position of submission at the feet of Jesus. This is more than just a, a courtesy-type bow that somebody might give before a foreign dignitary or even a king. This was an act of submission before Christ. But we see very few of anything in the New Testament of other religious Jewish leaders coming to Jesus. We can remember Nicodemus in John 3 where Jesus tells him about the necessity of being born again if one will enter the kingdom of heaven. We can read of Joseph of Arimathea in Luke 23, 50 and 51, who was a member of the council who had not consented to the murder of Christ. It all says that he was a righteous man looking for God's kingdom, so he took the body of Christ after the crucifixion and honored his body, laying him in a freshly hewn tomb. The only other Jesus leader, Jewish religious leader that I can think of in the New Testament who actually follows Jesus was Paul. We don't typically think of him as a Jewish, Jewish leader or part of that system that was in, against Christ. But we need to remember that Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a persecutor of the church. He was zealous and he was blameless according to the law, as reported in Philippians 3, 4, and 6. And of course, Paul didn't follow Christ until after the resurrection and ascension when he was confronted by the presence of God on the road to Damascus. That's all I can find. That's all I remember of Jewish leaders, religious leaders in Israel coming to Christ. When you think of the near unanimous rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leaders of the day, it is no wonder that even though Jesus garnered so much attention from the common men and women as he traveled, that the nation ultimately was hardened in rebellion. It shouldn't come as any surprise to us. Almost to a man, the leaders of the nation united and conspired against him. So the kneeling of a Jewish religious leader before the feet of Jesus should catch our attention. 
It wasn't an expected action in this narrative. This man was desperate. His daughter was dying, and he had nowhere else to turn. The hardness of his heart or the hearts of his peers could not keep him from acknowledging who Jesus was and from going to him and submitting himself before him to plead for the child he loved. Well, as we continue, there appears to be some disagreement between Matthew and Mark and Luke over whether the girl was dead when her father came to Jesus or if she died after he left and before they all returned. Matthew records Jairus of, of saying, my daughter has just died. While Mark records it is my little daughter is at the point of death. And Luke simply states that the man implored Jesus to come to his house because his 12 year old daughter was dying. In both Mark and Luke's accounts, there is a second part to their journey. In both of their accounts, there is a messenger who comes from the house of this ruler to tell them that Jairus should no longer trouble the master, no longer trouble the teacher, because his daughter was already dead. That messenger that was summarily rejected by Jesus, as he said, not to fear. So just... What was the man asking for? What was Jairus asking for when he came to Jesus? Is there a contradiction between our passage this morning and its sister passages in Mark and Luke? Well, if you read all of these accounts side by side, and actually a good resource, there's not a whole lot of resources that I'll say it's good to own and have in your home in your hand, but a, a good uh, synopsis of the Gospels is one that's a good thing to have. In a synopsis of the Gospels, you, can, you will have all four Gospels, and it'll show passage by passage. And the one I have follows Matthew predominantly, and it'll show how, what the other Gospels say about that same passage, how, how things are worded differently. You can see the difference in order of where things are at. It's a useful tool in looking through and understanding the Gospels. So if you look at, at a synopsis of the Gospels, it'll be obvious that Matthew gives us a very shortened account compared to both Mark and Luke. He gave a short summary of the events, again, like we said before, most likely to emphasize what he felt was important. So he left a lot out because that wasn't emphasizing what he was trying to get across to his reader. So what I believe happened here, what we see in this, in this difference, supposed contradiction, is that Matthew combined two parts of the story and thereby summarized what led Jesus to the ruler's home with the knowledge that he, the girl was dead before he'd get there. So we combine these two accounts of, of Jairus first asking and then the messenger coming with the report to show that Jesus knew that this girl was dead before he got to the house. That he came to the house knowing she was dead with the intention of raising her back to life. If you combine that with the father having certain knowledge that the girl was in the process of dying, that the girl was very much likely to die before he could ever have time to find the teacher and bring him back, you really remove any conflict that there might be or might appear to be between these accounts. 
Does that make sense? After all, we don't get the impression that the ruler had to travel that far to get Jesus. Capernaum wasn't that big of a city. And Jesus was a pretty popular guy. You just go to where the crowds are pressing in and surrounding. Just go to where the commotion was and you will find him. For there to be professional mourners already on the scene by the time Jesus and his disciples and the father got back to the ruler's house, they must have been quite sure that the girl was in the process of dying, that she would very soon be dead. He could have had every expectation that she would be gone by the time he got to Jesus. And therefore, even if she was alive when he left, he could have already said goodbye and approached Jesus with the knowledge that his daughter was as good as dead. Now, I don't want to dive too deep into speculation here. And we can't go beyond what Scripture tells us. We can't know for certain anything that the Bible doesn't tell us. My point here is that there are reasonable and rational ways to both acknowledge the different accounts that the gospel authors give us and to see that they don't, in fact, contradict one another. And we don't have to do all sorts of mental um, acrobatics to be able to get us there. In any account, Matthew makes it very clear whether the girl was dead or almost dead when Jairus left the house, that this ruler of the synagogue believed that Jesus could even bring her back from the dead. Of that, Matthew doesn't leave any doubt. Of course, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, that isn't quite the radical notion that it might seem like on first glance. There were at least three accounts of dead being raised back to life in the Old Testament, each tied to a great prophet of God who is uniquely close to God. You can read of them in 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24, in 2 Kings 4, 18 through 37, and 2 Kings 13, 21, dealing with Elijah and Elisha. So even while there was some precedent that holy men of God might be able to be used by God to raise the dead back to life, it was anything but common. For Jairus to come to Jesus with such confidence, he must have had a certain knowledge of who Jesus was, must have known that he wasn't just some wandering teacher. He must have known that Jesus was uniquely sent from God that this man who had healed all manner of sickness, this man who had calmed the raging sea, would even be able to raise the dead to life. What else but that sort of recognition could explain his confidence in coming to Jesus? What else could explain his willingness as a ruler in Israel to humble himself before the feet of Jesus to plead for his daughter? The pleading of the ruler for Jesus to come and heal his daughter found compassion from our Lord, and together they headed back with Jesus' disciples to Jairus' home. Of course, as it is so often the case, when we are on our way, when we are set and prepared for a task before us, 
even a desperate errand, when we are on our way and determined that they were distracted and delayed along the way. Written in verses 19 through 22, And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Well, here Matthew and or Mark and Luke don't give differing information. They just help fill in some details again. Mark adds to the account that the woman had suffered greatly under various physicians who had only managed to make her worse. So, and Luke adds that she had spent her entire life saving in the pursuit of a cure. So this was a woman who had spent 12 years going to every physician every healer, every kind of person that could promise any chance of relief, spent 12 years spending everything that she had trying to be made well. Most commentators agree that this bleeding discharge represented some form of chronic and at that time incurable form of a menstrual disorder. So imagine this, what this woman would have been under after suffering through any barbaric quasi-medical treatments or procedures available at that day, she had to add to the fact that the menstrual bleeding made her perpetually unclean, according to the Levitical standards of Leviticus 15, 19 through 32, or through 33. Think of the difficulty that that would have added to her life. On top of the immense physical pain, on top of the weakening effects of continually losing blood, she would have had to bear with essentially being cut off from normal society. Being perpetually unclean would mean that anybody she touched would become unclean. Anything she sat on would become unclean. Anyone who knew of her condition would have avoided her. There were some in that day, some religious zealots or Jewish leaders of that day that wouldn't go near women in general just on the off chance that they might be menstruating and they might accidentally be made unclean. Think of what they, how they would respond to a woman who they knew had this problem. The town wasn't that big and over 12 years, no doubt, everybody would have known of her condition. So it was actually pretty bold of her to even approach Jesus. In a tight crowd as she followed Jesus, she would have certainly come into contact trying to weave with other people, trying to weave her way to the front. She would have made them each ceremonially unclean. She would, her plan was even to make Jesus himself ceremonially unclean by touching his garments. Perhaps that is why she seems to have taken the tactic of trying to slip through unnoticed, just to sneak up behind him and reach out and touch his garments. Matthew recorded that Jesus turned to see her and comforted her, telling her that her faith had made her well. Literally, the word there is telling her that her faith had saved her. This is the only time that Matthew uses the verb to save in relation to a healing in his gospel accounts. Mark and Luke both record Jesus as feeling the healing power move out from his body into another person, such that he looked around and asked who had touched him. 
The disciples had no idea because the crowd of people were all around him. Of, of course somebody touched you. There's a bunch of people bumping into you. Yet Jesus knew something special had happened. At that point, the woman fell before him trembling and told him what she had done and why. Of course, some of us might expect at that point for there to be some annoyance or something, the, the, the ruler lashing out because he needed Jesus to get back to his daughter and this woman had interrupted them, this, this woman who was unclean, this woman who was a constant issue among the people. Yet all the authors clearly relate the compassion of Jesus. He did not show frustration. He did not rebuke her. Even though she'd become a distraction on the way to a very serious errand of mercy. He had compassion on her. And he, instead of rebuking her, Jesus looked at her and commended her faith. Commended her for coming to him. And told her that her faith in him had saved her. Well, I think we rightly want to jump immediately to the spiritual picture being acted out in the flesh here. That the curing of the physical ailment represents the spiritual healing of the soul by faith. Yet even as in the healing of the body, this woman had her life restored unto her. We must not miss the significance of the restoration of the physical world in our race to celebrate the victory of Christ in the spiritual world. Christ restores both the physical and the spiritual. God cares about both. And Christ has authority over both. He has already demonstrated authority over both. Over nature, over sickness, over unclean spirits, over sin itself. Well, it's hard to say how long that encounter with the woman would have delayed Jesus and the party he was traveling with. But by the time they got to the house of the ruler, the daughter had been dead long enough for there to be professional mourners already going about their work around the place. Read in verses 23 and 24, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. While it might sound a little bit odd to us, it was completely normal in first century Jewish culture to employ professional mourners when a loved one died. I read that at this time, even the poorest Jewish families were expected to hire not less than two pipers and one wailing woman. I cannot tell you how these traditions developed or where they began. But they were taking seriously the calls for lamenting and wailing that we do see in Jeremiah or in Amos. And there's a number of places in the Old Testament where we see this kind of a call for lamenting and for wailing. And they took it seriously. So there was literally women whose job it was to go around when people were sad and to wail and to make a commotion for them. Well, there have been some that have tried to argue that the little girl wasn't actually dead at this point. And that when Jesus said, she is not dead, she is sleeping, that he was actually correcting their misdiagnosis. He was just telling them, that, no, no, you're wrong. She's, she's not actually dead. Watch, I'll wake her up. 
Yet that doesn't fit with the context of this passage or the medical reality of this time. This girl had not simply just fallen into some deep sleep. These people knew a great deal about death. These people knew a great deal about childhood death. It was a constant companion among them. Many children did not survive until adulthood. They would have understood common childhood ailments that could not be cured. They would have understood the signs of what was bringing somebody to death and what a child would not get up from again. They were so sure about the certainty of death for this little girl that the professionals were already standing by to mourn her death and they were already out there going about their professional business when Jesus and the Father came back. Sleep is a common metaphor for death throughout the New Testament. In this case, it was a much more apt description of what the little girl was experiencing than it was to say she was dead. It's more accurate to say she's sleeping because it was a temporary condition. So yes, she was dead, but in a sense, yes, she was sleeping because it was not to stay that way. We cannot help but tie accounts of the dead rising to life with the wonder of the gospel and the hope of both spiritual life being brought where there had only been death, as well as the hope of resurrection where the weakness and corruption of the curse is undone. Continuing in Matthew in verses 25 and 26, but when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all the district. Well, taking the extended accounts of Mark and Luke into account, we see that Jesus set out most of the people, most of the people he got there, all, these, all the mourners, all the extended family. And if, if the man was a ruler among the people, there would have been a lot of people around. Jesus got rid of most of them, sending them out. He allowed only Peter and James and John, along with the girl's parents, to accompany with him when he went to the, where the girl lay dead. Matthew records that Jesus simply took her by the hand and the girl arose. Well, this is fitting with Matthew because Matthew indicates, records earlier that the father had pleaded with Jesus just to simply lay his hand on her, knowing that if Jesus just laid hands on her, that this little girl would come back from the dead. That is in contrast to the hope of the centurion in chapter 8. Remember when the centurion came to Jesus in chapter 8, he, he said, Nay, Lord, you don't need to come to my house. It is not right for you to come to my house. I am not worthy for you to come to my house. But since he understood authority, he understood that if Jesus had authority, that Jesus had but to speak, and his words, his command, would be obeyed. Many have commented that the difference between these two, between this ruler of the synagogue and that centurion, shows the relative strength of their faith. They say that the centurion had a greater faith as he believed Jesus could simply speak and it would be accomplished. Therefore, the ruler who believed that Jesus needed to come and touch his daughter must have had a weaker faith because he believed that nearness and physical connection was necessary. I'm honestly not sure how much to make of that difference, though the comparison is interesting and does bring up some good discussion. Scripture does give us accounts of people who showed great faith in Jesus and others who had very weak faith. 
and we see Jesus to both, to those who had great faith and to those who had weak faith, we see Jesus responding with compassion. So does it take more faith to believe that Jesus can heal from a distance? Does it show greater faith to request that Jesus raise the dead? And perhaps this difference is nothing more than a Gentile knowing that Jesus, as a Jew, could not properly enter his home. And this Jewish leader knew that in the past, in the Old Testament, God had raised others from the dead, that he had done so by physical contact with the prophets. The physical contact with the holy man of God, and he knew that it was, there was nothing inappropriate about Jesus, a Jew, entering the Jewish home other than the fact that both of them then were disregarding laws of impurity about touching a dead body. At the least, it is comforting that Scripture contains people act, acting out in faith to God in, and acting out in faith to His promises in a myriad of ways. I find that comforting. Everyone who is saved is saved by faith that comes from the same Spirit, and rests on the same Christ. Yet our experiences are not all the same. How we show faith is not all the same. The strength of which we step out in faith is not all the same. And all glory to God for that. The other gospel record, records show that Jesus took the girl by the hand and commanded her to rise. Mark records that Jesus said, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Luke simply records him as saying, child, arise. There is no need for any concern between their accounts and Matthew's. Yet there's no reason to doubt by the words of Jesus, by the words of all these authors that the child was dead and had been restored to life by the command of Christ. As we would expect when commanded by the creator of the universe, when the girl was beckoned to rise, whether that was from an audible voice or just a hand taking hers in his, she immediately got up. As with other miracles that we have seen Jesus perform, the change was instant and it was complete. Jesus did not simply begin a process that would eventually call the girl back from the dead, nor did he just manage to wake a girl who was sleeping so that she returned to the, the near-death state that she had been in when her father went to find Jesus in the first place. He raised a dead child back to life. She became very much alive and well. And both Mark and Luke record that the girl immediately got up and started walking. Jesus even instructed that she be brought food. She was so well from being brought back to life from Jesus that she was hungry. Apparently being raised from the dead is hungry work. And of course, that reminds us of Jesus eating and drinking with his disciples after he arose from the grave. Eating is a sure way to dispel any rumor that a person is merely a ghost and not truly restored to life. This wasn't designed as a publicity stunt. 
This was a compassionate healing of a beloved child in response to the faith that Jesus would be able to raise her from the dead. The girl's parents were charged with telling no one of what happened. Jesus was not trying to draw more attention to himself. If Jesus was ministering in this generation, he would not have been taking selfies with the girl and her parents. He would not have been plastering it all over social media with some hashtag of, look what I can do. Even so, it was already well known that this girl was dead. So too would it become well known that she was now alive and well. Matthew records that despite the charge to the girl's parents, the report of this event went out through all the district. I can't recall off the top of my head a single time where Jesus charged somebody who had been healed to keep quiet about the miracle that Jesus had performed and they actually obeyed. I can't think of a single time. That kind of news has a habit of getting out. That kind of news has a habit of inspiring one to shout for joy and to tell everybody who will hear. Others will hear, and others will want to get in on the benefit of being near to the man who can raise the dead. We can have no doubt this event would have become become famous all across the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee and throughout the Jewish land in Galilee, throughout the Jewish world. The growing fame of Jesus and the constant crowds of people pressing in to be near him, even the attention of one of the rulers of the synagogue, all that attention stands in stark contrast to what will soon be pronounced about the cities of that region. Just a couple chapters ahead, we read in Matthew 11, 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. We see here the effects of the works of Christ that everybody knew about. Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, remember the, Capernaum, Jesus' home base during most of his earthly ministry. Capernaum, where all these miracles were performed. Capernaum, where this girl was raised back to life when she had been dead. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The rejection of God's kingdom and her king by those to whom he had been promised was so complete that even though he had displayed the fullness of his authority over the spiritual and the physical to the point of raising the dead, the people would not ultimately be convinced. And with each miracle that did not cause them to respond in faith, 
the people were sealing their fate and the fate of the nation. God would cut them off and Christ would be given a new people, a new Jerusalem. I simply cannot forget the reality of Jesus' ultimate rejection as I read about all the wonders and miracles that he performed among the people. It confirms what I already know to be true about myself. If I was given the chance to turn away, I would do it. If I had the ability to lose my salvation, I would do it. I don't have that kind of illusion about myself. There's nothing about me that would keep me faithful. Nothing about me that would keep me holy. Nothing about me that would keep me following after down that narrow path, that hard road to life. Everything that is about me would jump off that road, walk down that road that leads to destruction because it was easy, because it was pleasant, because it promised the riches of the world. And we see that acted out even to these people that had so many promises, so much truth given to them, so many miracles performed in their sight. And even though God raised the dead before their very eyes, they did not believe You can pray with me, may the God who saved me keep me, for I would surely lose myself. For both the woman and the girl, Jesus gave a restored life. This woman had suffered for, from bad health for 12 years, the same amount of time that this little girl had been alive. Both of them had been robbed of the life that they had been given. Both of them had had the life restored to them. Again, Christ cares both for the existence of life and for the quality of life. While this account gives us comfort that God cares about the quality of our lives and that we can and should cry out to him with every sickness, with every heartache, with every suffering, that, that all of it would be removed from us, we can and should make those petitions to our king who does care for us. Yet sometimes God has a purpose in allowing our suffering to remain with us in this life. Sometimes God brings suffering into our lives as a way to humble us or to discipline us so that we will run to him in repentance and faith. Other times, he wills us endure it, to endure it until the end of this life. Beloved, if you are suffering, be that physical or emotional, if you are suffering, I can't tell you what kind of suffering you are enduring. I can't tell you whether or not that suffering is just for a season, something that you just must endure for the moment, or if it is something that Christ will call upon you to endure until that moment when you are finally freed from this body of death. We don't get to know that ahead of time. In either case, the objective is to draw you to the kindness of Christ. If there is unrepentant sin, repent. That should be simple. If you are suffering, 
Search your heart. Ask the Spirit of God to search you, to know your ways, to reveal to you any way that you are in sin against our Creator. If we are not walking in faithfulness, then we would ask that God would reveal that to us, that we would surround ourselves with other believers who will love us and love God enough that they will tell us where we are sin. So if you are in sin, repent. But, there is plenty of suffering that has nothing to do with our own sin. It is all the result of the curse. If there is not sin that is unrepented in your life, And Christ has determined that it is good for you to endure suffering, be it for a while or for the rest of your life. Let that pain have its desired effect to draw your gaze away from this present life and onto the glory and eternal bliss that is ours in Christ. In either circumstance, we can be confident that closeness to Christ is the only salve that'll tame the sting of the wound. We must be confident that where Christ leads us, where Christ leads us, even if it is through the valley of the shadow of death, that he will keep us and care for us, that he is able even if it is through suffering that lasts a lifetime, he is able to keep us and care for us. So whether you are hoping for your physical life to be restored, or metaphorically for your life to be restored, for your problems, your heartaches, all to be taken away from you, or whether you are hoping for spiritual life out of death for you or someone you love, Look to Christ. There is nowhere else that you will find what you so deeply desire. All authority belongs to him. All power belongs to him. All glory belongs to him. He is able. And he is good. All praise to his holy name. Father, we do give you honor and praise and glory. We do confess our need, our dependence. Father, let us not allow pain and suffering and heartache to to draw our attention anywhere else, but let it focus our gaze completely, fully, truly, wholly upon Christ. May your word, your promises be comfort to us. May your people be a comfort to us. May your presence, your spirit within us be a comfort to us. And may we pray to you, with all confidence that you are able to overcome whatever we face. 
Because all authority has been given to the Son. He can raise the dead, forgive sins, and restore what has been lost. Help us to walk faithfully. Help us to love one another, to serve one another, to obey our King. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.